0: We are starting the ninth chapter of our confession. So, Caleb spent several weeks going through Christ as our mediator. And as we go through these next several chapters, we're essentially explaining what salvation is and how it takes place, beginning with knowledge of us, where we're at, of free will, and you can just glance at the next chapters of effectual calling. And so we're going to be coming to understanding because of our sin, we are unwilling to pursue the Lord of our own, and so the Lord must effectually call us. But as we're getting there, we're going to do this. We're going to look through chapter 9 on free will, and as I alluded to... Um, this is a dangerous subject to talk about with many, many Christians today, and I, I think of just a few weeks ago, I was at the University of Findlay, I was talking with a student and just explaining what kind of church we were, and um, Reformed Baptist Church, what does Reformed mean, okay, um, do you know, just looking for shorthand terms to try and explain it quickly, do you know what Calvinism means, yes, okay, do you believe in free will at all, and... <laughs> that was just his association with it. Like, if, if you believe in God's sovereignty over all things, that means that you don't believe that we're free in any way, shape, or form. And I think there are many Christians that feel that way. I've also heard multiple people on campus and books I've read that have expressed that if what we confess, have already confessed, is true about God, then they cannot worship that kind of God. Because of Free will, And it is a very important subject because we can say what is at stake is what we correctly perceive to be essential to being a human being. And I think we should say that what is essential to being a human being is making free choices. That is an essential component as to what it means to be a human being. We should be able to confess that without caveats. And what's at stake is, if that's not true, then heaven and hell don't make any sense. Expectations to obey the law of God is nonsensical. God would be a puppet master pulling on puppet strings and then punishing the puppets for doing what he pulls on the strings to do. And this is a terrifying idea of what a God could be like. But we confess that that is not what God is like. That's not our relationship to him. We have confessed many things about God so far, and we're going to go back and look at it, but just to give you an outline of the chapter, there are five paragraphs in this chapter. The first one is my focus for this morning. Think of it as just ground-level definition of what we're talking about with free will to begin with. And then the next four paragraphs talk about, um, if we're going to use Boston's language, the the different states of our human nature. So paragraph two is the state of our human nature prior to the fall. Paragraph three is the state of our human nature after the fall, unsaved, unregenerate. Paragraph four is after the fall, but regenerate. What can we say about our free will at that state? And then paragraph five is um, in, the, in the final state. What is the nature of our will in the eschaton? So, we are faced with an immediate difficulty in talking about this because when we speak of free will, we are going to mean something different than most people. And to begin with, the difficulty is what we confess about God, what we've confessed about God already. And I just want to remind us, um, in chapter 3, paragraph 1 of our confession, we have confessed that God hath decreed in himself from all eternity by the most wise and holy counsel of his own will, freely and unchangeably, all things whatsoever come to pass. Yet so as thereby God is is neither the author of sin, nor hath fellowship with any therein, nor is violence offered to the will of the creature, nor yet is the liberty or contingency of second causes taken away, but rather established in which appears his wisdom in disposing all things and power and faithfulness in accomplishing his decree. And I also want to make reference to paragraph 2. Although in relation to the foreknowledge and decree of God, the first cause, all things come to pass immutably and infallibly, so that there is not anything befalls any by chance, or without his providence, yet by the same providence, he ordered them to fall out according to the nature of second causes, either necessarily freely, or contingently. So we begin with, what are we saying about God? There's no luck. There's no randomness. Everything that happens, happens by God's decree. So if we were to justify this confession with Scripture, what scriptures come to mind is we want to remind ourselves of where we've been already. Yeah, 111. yeah. one eleven. Yeah, Ephesians one11 through twelve. In Him we have an ob- obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of Him who works all things, not some things, not a few things, but all things. Works all things according to the counsel of his will. And Paul doesn't find this to be a terrifying idea. So that we also, or so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. So really, God's utter sovereignty is the foundation of Paul's understanding of salvation. It's something he builds upon to say, we know we can be saved because God works all things according to the counsel of his will. There's a few other texts that I have. Um, any other texts that come to mind on this subject? Regarding the no-luck bit, Proverbs 16:33 is a great um, text to have in mind. The lot. We could just replace that with the dice just for sake of simplicity. The dice is cast into the lap, the lot is cast into the lap, but it's every decision is from the Lord. And so you think of just something to help us think this through. When we think of something that's chance-related, gambling, we think of dice, rolling dice, randomness, luck. But Proverbs is saying, this thing that we look to to produce random results, its every decision is from the Lord. And so, a big concept I would point to here is that luck does not. A concept of luck does not work with this, as far as unguided things that just happen or just occur with no purpose or thought behind them. Were you? Oh yeah. Yes. Yes. Great, great passage. Isaiah 46. I'm going to go to verse 8 through 11. Remember this and stand firm. Recall it to mind, you transgressors. Remember the former things of old. For I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me. So he's saying, all these pagan gods you're worshiping, they're not like me in any way. And then he goes on to describe how he's different than them. So how is he different than all these pagan gods? Well, God declares the end from the beginning and from ancient times things not yet done, saying, my counsel shall stand and I will accomplish all my purpose. Calling a bird of prey from the east, the man of my counsel from a far country, I have spoken and I will bring it to pass. I have purposed and I will do it. And so the text is just hammering on this. I'm different than all your idols. Why? Why? Because I have declared, I don't see, but I have declared the end from the beginning and I will do what I have declared will be done. So, moving on for the sake of time. How can God decree whatsoever comes to pass while at the same time our language from chapter 9, paragraph 1 that God has endowed will a man with that natural liberty and power of acting upon choice. We're confessing both. And I think the answer comes from uh, chapter 5, paragraph 3 of our confession. God in his ordinary providence makes use of means. Yet is free to work without, above, and against them at his pleasure. And what we're, what I'm getting at here is that many people think if God has decreed it, then when it happens, it was not a free choice of any of the parties involved. Maybe many things, but they were bound almost like um, you're taking someone's hands and you're making them do something. They didn't really have a choice. I don't think the Bible allows for that idea. What the Bible seems to assert is that God is meticulously sovereign over every detail in the universe, and yet we are also free creatures that make free choices. And in the free choices that we make, God's meticulous decree is carried out exactly as he has decreed. So, just asking for some texts. Where do we see God using the free choices of man to accomplish his will? There are multiple texts we can go to. Joseph, yeah, Genesis 50-20. Great text to have in mind for this. Genesis fifty twenty, as for you, Joseph's brothers, you meant evil against me. They meant it. They freely did what they did, intending evil for Joseph. No one coerced them into doing it. No one forced them into doing it. They did exactly what they wanted to do. But God meant it, intended it, which is an interesting language. Joseph's brothers did what they did, intending what they did for evil. God also has intentionality in this, but for Joseph's good. To bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. So you have the language of intentionality, both from Joseph's brothers and from God, tied to the actions of Joseph's brothers. I think it makes a lot of sense to see this as Joseph's brothers freely doing what they want to do, in carrying out God's meticulous decree. Any other texts that come to mind? Yeah, Acts 2 and 4. Acts 2, 23. This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. And... Someone could say, well, which is it? Was it the wicked lawless men that killed Jesus or did God decree it? Implying that if God decreed it, then the wicked men aren't responsible because God decreed it. Could anything else have been done? But the Bible does not speak this way. The Bible speaks, again, in a way that free creatures do free, freely chosen things that they want to do and God is also working His will through these things. In Acts 4, 27-28, For truly in this city they were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. We know from reading the Gospels, Herod is more than willing to play his part in the crucifixion of Christ. Pontius Pilate may not have been happy (laughs) to play his part, but he did what he wanted to do in those moments. And through them, whatever God's hand and his plan predestined to take place, took place. So what we're getting at right now is trying to set ourselves up to understand we can speak of being free creatures doing freely chosen things with a God who is meticulously sovereign over every detail in the universe. And the Bible leads us to think and speak in this way. And I do, I would, I do say that views that try to circumvent this are reading against the grain of what Scripture is showing us. So, getting to the paragraph itself. Chapter 9, paragraph 1. God has endued the will of man with that natural liberty and power of acting upon choice that it is neither forced nor by any necessity of nature determined to do good or evil. And what we're getting at here is, okay, we've said this about God's meticulous sovereignty. We've said this about what we do. How do we begin to describe free will, positively. And the paragraph begins with the word God, which is instructive. This is a God-given gift. And this brings us back to the former uh, statements about how secondary causes are established by God's decree. And this is one way that that plays out. That our free will that we have is given by God. Now, to ask what free means, what does free will mean? I think there's really two main ways of looking at this, at least that I'm going to address this morning. I'm sure there's as many ways as there are books, but we're going to look at two. One way of understanding a choice being a free choice is if I were able, or free to choose the opposite or choose a different choice. That's one way people try to think about free will. And this gets at the idea of what some call libertarian free will. The idea that we can make choices unbounded by our nature, unbounded by um, external or internal factors. I can just make a choice, well, it's hard to say even based on what with this idea. But we can talk about being autonomous, which literally means self-governing. The idea that I'm not governed by anything outside of me, anything not outside of my control, anything not outside of my desires. And we can just use a mundane example. I have two dishes in front of me, something that's my favorite dish, something that's my least favorite dish, and we say, well, a person's going to eat their favorite dish. Is that a free choice? And it, get, it gets complicated if your idea of freedom is you are free to choose the contrary. Because when you're saying that I'm free to choose the contrary, you're trying to get around, there are no other factors coercing me towards a particular choice. The choices need to be totally unbound By predispositions attached to them either side so I can make a free choice. But in this example, my preferences predispose me to choose one particular thing. My known food allergies may predispose me to choosing one or the other. My past experiences may predispose me to making a certain dietary choice. And if I am, for example, offered a dish with peanuts and a hamburger and fries on the other and I have a peanut allergy and I remember when I was a child a horrific example of being inflamed after eating peanuts and I choose to eat hamburger and fries is it really a free choice? It gets complicated if your definition of free is I was just freely able to choose the contrary. It's not by any means simple. Another example is more uh, relevant to our discussion. The idea that unregenerate men have within their nature the freedom to choose that which is pleasing to God, especially regarding the choice to repent of their sins and embrace Christ as Lord. And as we're going to go through the confession, and as we're going to go through Scripture, the Bible's language about our wills being fallen Has a lot to speak to on this subject. We can, I I just want to leave that there for now. We'll talk more about that in the coming weeks. Jean Paul Sartre, one of his arguments, as a French existentialist philosopher, one of his arguments that God could not exist is that if God is sovereign over all things, there is no such thing as a free creature. We are free creatures. Therefore, God doesn't exist. And this gets at the very popular idea, again, that if I'm going to make a free choice, I must have been totally free to choose other than what I did, in fact choose. And this view of free will tends to be the default understanding of those with the Armenian perspective. The idea being that salvation is potential for every individual that ever existed. What makes salvation actual is my choice to embrace Jesus Christ as Lord. It is a free will choice to accept Christ's atonement for sin. Therefore, every individual must be capable of choosing to embrace Jesus Christ as Lord. Or, as many of them shudder to think, i mean, rightly so, if, if this is all correct and we are not free to choose, then we have a terrifying reality where you have the idea that there are people that are going to want to be saved but couldn't be saved because God just didn't choose them. And the Bible does not teach this in any way, shape, or form. The other way to think about, and I think the better way, to define what is a free will choice is a choice is free if you have done what you desired to do. And I think this is much more fitting with the biblical data, the biblical way of explaining things, that you have done a free will choice if you've done what you wanted to do. At least in broad philosophical terms. Um, Jonathan Edwards, I think, is really helpful here. He says, free moral agents always act according to the strongest inclination they have at the moment of choice. So every decision you make ever about anything In the moment of making that choice, it's because it is what you most wanted to do in that moment, given the choices available to you, given all the variables that you factor at light speed, you end up doing what you most want to do in that moment. And I really have a hard time thinking how this could not be the case. I'm up here right now because due to various factors, this is what I most want to do in this moment. It uh, may not mean that I am giddy with excitement <laughs> to be up here. But it does mean given all the various factors, given my role as an elder in this church, my relationship with all of you, my desire to teach this subject, all of these different things coming together culminates in a desire to be up here which I'm acting upon. If you're sitting at home on the couch, you begin to feel guilty because you've sat on the couch for a few hours and you decide I want to sweep the floors, it's because not you're excited to sweep the floors and this is your favorite thing to do in the world, but you've decided in the moment that you get up, you want to do that more than you want to continue laying on the couch. I I think it really is pretty simple when we consider it in terms like this. We make all decisions that we make based on what we think best or what our affections desire most. And with this in mind, I want to look at Genesis 3. Because you see both at play in this first decision that Eve makes. Eve has been tempted by the serpent. And in verse 6, so when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate, and she also gave some to her husband who was with her. Which means, in that moment, she did what she most wanted to do. She did what most seemed right to her. Through her rational faculties, through her desires, she made the free choice to act upon what she wanted to do. And Adam did the same thing. Now we can, you know, we can speculate all day, did he do it because it was... His wife asking him to do it. Did he really desire to do it in and of itself? At the end of the day, it doesn't matter because all of those factors culminate in what, I, what he most wanted to do in that moment. He did. And he took the fruit and he ate. And it's interesting, after this, a lot of the way to say that they did wicked things, um, as w- another way of saying that is they did what was right in their own eyes. And it's because of this idea. They're acting upon their desires, and in a fallen state, that's going to be wicked desires. We see this in Judges 17 and 21 through 21. It's bookended with this phrase: There was no king in Israel in those days. Everyone did what was right in their own eyes. And we could read that to say, everyone freely did what they wanted to do, and it was terrible. And it was horrible. Matthew 17:12. But I tell you that Elijah has already come and they did not recognize him but did to him whatever they pleased. So also the son of man will suffer at their hands. And so with this, I think the Bible lends itself and I think prods us to understand that a free choice is one that we make in alignment with our desires. If I did what I wanted to do, I made a free choice. going on through the language of the confession. The will of man has natural liberty of choice. And the language can be funny because when I first read this, I thought that natural was a, like, a I'm by uh, what is natural to me as a created human being is liberty of choice, which I guess can be read that way, but it's more the liberty is bound by nature is what the language is getting at. By natural liberty of choice, you're given a liberty of choice bound by your nature. That's really what the language is getting at. And so that's why the confession goes on to give these four different states what that's like in the unfallen state, what that's like in the fallen unregenerate state, what that's like in the fallen regenerate state, and what that's like in the future glorified state. In all of these states, man is rightly called free. And another major theological problem with the idea that freedom is defined as the freedom to choose the opposite or contrary is that then you'd have to say we're not free in the glorified state. Because we all confess that there will be no sin in heaven. I will be totally removed from the presence of sin, from the power of sin, unable to rebel against God and I praise God for that and I look forward to that. But according to the popular conception of free will, then you would say, well, you're not a free creature then. Nor are you even really a human being then? But according to what we've been discussing, I will do what I most desire to do and my desires will be good. It'll be wonderful. And I will be a free creature. Man has the power to act upon the free choice that is made. That's... um, the language that um, he has been endued with that natural liberty and power of acting upon choice. So you have the ability to choose, you have the ability to act upon it. That's what it's saying. That is neither forced nor by any necessity of nature determined to do good or evil. Now, no one's going to be able to say, as you've probably heard, I did something bad, I was caught, the devil made me do it that excuse will never fly. The opposite is also true, that on the final day of judgment, there is no one who's going to be able to point to God and say, you made me do it. It will not fly, it will not work, because we are free creatures doing what we freely choose to do, what we most desire to do. And outside of God's reaching out to us and regenerating us, we will freely choose to do wicked. We will freely choose evil every time. And God is justified in punishing us for the evil that we freely choose to do. We can ask the question, what is good? And it's interesting that the word good shows up in every paragraph here. So... Uh, so, at paragraph one, nor by any necessity of nature determined to do good or evil. Paragraph two, um, man in his state of innocency had freedom and power to will and to do that which was good and well pleasing to God. In paragraph three, man has fully lost all, all ability to will to any spiritual good. Paragraph four, When God converts the sinner, he freely gives; he, he frees him from his natural bondage under sin and by his grace alone enables him freely to will and to do that which is spiritually good. And the will of man is made perfectly in paragraph five and immutably free to good alone in the state of glory only. So this word good shows up in every paragraph. And we, we could ask, what does it mean? What is good getting at here? And I think we have to say that there's some idea of conformity to the law of God behind this idea of good. There's some idea of conformity to God's nature, which gets back to what we've said before, even prior to the fall, man had God's law written on their hearts. There was was a proclivity to do good prior to the fall. There's a definition as to what good is prior to the fall and through all of human history. And the paragraphs couching all these things are will in terms of whether we, how we relate to that standard, how we relate to that standard of good, which gets to another thing we should say about defining free will. I think it is very helpful to think of it in terms of we do what we most want to do at any given moment. But the Bible does have another way of talking about it. And so Galatians 5.1. Galatians 5.1 says, For freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. So what does freedom mean in this context? What freedom means in this context is not just freedom to do what I most want to do in any given moment, but freedom to serve Christ. Freedom to do that which is good. And it is this freedom that unfallen man does not have. We are bound under a yoke of slavery. This is where the language of Romans 6 is so helpful. Why are they slaves to Christ or we're slaves to sin. And so when we're looking through this paragraph in this language of um, our freedom of the will being defined in terms of our relationship to whether we can do good or not, that's where a lot of this New Testament language can be very helpful. And I think this language is drawn from that. In short, we confess a full-throated affirmation of free will, though it is a very different kind of free will than what is affirmed by most of humanity. This confession of the freedom of the will of man is in no conflict with the absolute sovereignty of God that we also confess. Rather, the freedom of will that we experience is established by God's sovereignty. And I think this last text I want to read before I open it up is Proverbs sixteen nine, The heart of man plans his way, but the Lord establishes his steps. It's just another way of saying the whole thing all over again. So I can't promise I'll be able to answer <laughs> every question you might have, but are there any questions? Is there anything you want to throw out there? Yes. Uh, without being born of the kingdom of God. Yes. Romans eight, um the verse seven for the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. Yeah. So it does not submit to God's law, indeed it cannot. Yeah. It cannot it can't do spiritually good things and I think is choosing Christ. Yeah, believing in Christ is a good right." Well, in Hebrews eleven six is right along the same lines. It's, um, and without faith, it is impossible to please Him. And obviously, repenting of our sins and embracing Christ as Lord is pleasing to Him. But without the gift of faith, it's impossible. Heather? makes me think of in Isaiah. Yeah. Right. Nancy. talked about faith mm and that's not something that we can muster ourselves correct yes yes right so yes right and yeah yes Not in the not in the sense that we as fallen creatures, none of us will ever choose. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. 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 Because yeah, there's a lot of atheists that read the Bible and continue to hate God. What's the difference? The Holy Spirit comes in and gives you the gift of faith and opens your eyes. <clears throat> I guess it's sad that I mean in the world's perspective is the exact opposite. They think that we're, you know, made to make these decisions, that God's controlling us or whatever. But if we look at Paul's life, when he says, you know, the things that he wants to do are the things that he don't do. Yeah. Right. It shows that Christ is not the enslaver. Sin is the enslaver. Sin mm-hmm. is the one that bounds us and enables us to not make a free choice until Christ comes in and breaks that. Yeah. I mean, it's very easy to see, you know, just in the like life of Paul, that you know, he wants to do what he doesn't do. Yep. And I think that language still fits well with Edward's uh, description because I don't think Paul's intention is to give an, an academic dissertation on the nature of free will. What I think Paul is getting at is there's a war going on inside of me. And I don't identify with the sin that rages up and commits sin. I identify with Christ who's in me. And I think that's really what Paul's getting at. So we have to end it because we're running out on time. So let's pray. Heavenly Father, we pray that you would bless us and help us as we think about these things. These things are Difficult, complicated, and challenges perhaps more than many other things because it confronts us with our total and utter inability, our total helplessness, and our complete need for you to act for any good to be done in our lives. I pray that you would help us as we reflect on these things in Jesus' name, amen.